Today's edition of the podcast is brought to you by CoachMe Plus. CoachMe Plus is the leader in athlete management software and a product that I've been lucky enough to be using for a little over a year now. Only rivaled by the impeccable customer service that Kevin and his staff provides, CoachMe Plus's ability to constantly be amoeba-like in their ability to mold and, and matriculate what you're trying to get across and bring together is, is absolutely fantastic. Their constant pursuit of better ways and better methods and, and innovations and progress to their own product is absolutely fantastic. Go over to CoachMePlus.com. Check out what they got, guys. It's, uh, it's something that I guarantee you won't be disappointed with. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, we have a sensational discussion with Altus's Dan Path talking about what's important in training and what transfers to performance. We're going to start out talking about what they look at at Altus down there in Arizona when it comes to developing training programs with their athletes. We're going to talk about KPIs, the what's and the how's as to what they are and how they set them up and they're organized then Dan shares with us how they evaluate their athletes and establish really a hierarchy of what's important when it comes to training and technique work and all of those things. You know, we, we finished talking about the role of the weight room and how he's seen it as both a pro and a con throughout his career. And then we get into finally discussing the importance of mentorship when it comes to developing coaches. This talk is absolutely sensational. I can't thank Dan enough for taking the time to speak with us today. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Coach, thanks for being on with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we, we were just talking a little bit off camera, and you know the, the thing that I'm really interested in when we talk with all these people involved in track and field is the things that they see that matter. Um, so what are some things that you guys are doing down there in, in Arizona you know, whether it be in the weight room or anything off the track or, you know, out of the pits that you're seeing having some real carryover to, to the athletes you're working with? Well, I think uh, as a foundational thought train, um, it's really the art of essentialism. You know, what are the essential fundamentals and movement skills and postures and biomotor abilities that an athlete needs for their stage of development or their sporting question. So doing an ergonomic analysis of the athlete and the sport they're involved in and their stage of development and kind of a SWOT analysis, if you will, um, should determine, you know, your initial starting spot on uh, what to work on. And then you use coaching science for how frequently do we do it and how you know, what are the volume ranges and intensity ranges? And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the process that we, that underpins what we do. So, um, quick speak, it's identifying KPIs and then ranking those KPIs in a hierarchy and realize you can't attack a hundred KPIs in a training cycle or, uh, so you have to have a hierarchy of these things and, that hierarchy determines a density pattern for when you do those things, and that's based off some training theory or experimentation. You know, it'd be great to say, well, this guy's got a speed deficit, so we're going to sprint every day. Well, we've tried that, and 
guys that end up with major injuries and we're like, well, I guess you can't sprint every day. So sometimes the school of hard knocks is um, our metric indicator. We're overboard on something. No, no doubt about it. Now, it's awesome that you brought up KPIs because Keenan Robinson was just here presenting at the seminar and he brought up that idea too. And obviously, you know, dealing with athletes in the water is, is a completely different animal. Uh, but how are you guys looking at that? How are you identifying those those key performance indicators for the athletes and, and the sports that they're involved in? Well, I think there's, a, you know, I look at it as a file systems and, and there's lots of files uh, for athletic excellence. So one file might be lifestyle. So you have lifestyle KPIs, you know, sleep hygiene, diet, nutrition, hydration, stress management, coping skills, mental resilience skills, and all of that. You know, you develop a KPI file of those factors and those features, and they may underpin, they may influence, they may override, but, you know, that's a file. Then you have a biomechanical KPI file system. So what are the essential fundamental biomechanical abilities this athlete needs for their position or their sport? How do they rank on those things? Prioritize deficiencies and have a list of strengths. We kind of operate, we keep strengths really strong and slowly fill in weaknesses, but we look at biomechanics, the kinetics and kinematics of that athlete in their sporting discipline, and we develop ranking systems on what's good, what's bad, and how we need to attack their current state of, of readiness. Um, could be programming KPIs, you know, uh, so you get into the biomotor ability thing, like they may have tremendous absolute strength, but they don't express power real well. And, you know, rate of force development's a big buzzword right now, but the ability to apply huge forces in quick periods of time in the right angle at the right moment may be more important than their absolute rate of force development. So J.B. Moran and the French guys, and uh, I think our friends at SMU, Wagan and those guys, they're kind of showing that rate of force development is a huge limiter for speed. But if it's not expressed at the right angle, right factors, you know, you, you can be tremendously strong and powerful. But if you can't apply it, then it, it really doesn't add value. So looking at programming features, uh, you know, where are the bio, biological, biochemical gaps and weaknesses uh, will influence programming. So we have a lot of file systems for KPI factors, and it creates kind of a fractal pattern layering of these KPIs and ranking of these KPIs, which influence ultimately the program. No, then that's... Fantastic with you guys going all the way down when it, you're talking those lifestyle changes because that's also kind of a, a new sexy term, you know, when people are looking at like everything that's not athletic based. Yeah. Um, so now going back, you talked about breaking things down biomechanically. So what do you guys do? How do you guys evaluate your athletes? And then looking at that, when you look at the nuances of each individual athlete, like, I'm sure if we sat down and broke down how Bolt ran, we could find things that we would think probably wouldn't work well, but things are working pretty well. So, yeah. like, how do you guys break it down, and then how do you determine 
whether that is a pro or a con to end up moving that athlete in a positive direction? That's a good question. I think the, any topic we're going to talk about in, in sport development, uh, it's kind of like the political stance in America right now. you got people on polls, and they fight like hell for their, their stance. So we look at phenomena more on a spectral basis, and where you're at in the spectrum could be due to time of year or your health, previous learning experiences, negative transfer, coach bias, athlete bias team culture, you know, what have you. A lot of those things will influence um, your modeling. Overdevelopment of muscle systems will result in a certain slide in the bandwidth to the technical model. But there are essentials and common denominators, landmark positions that excellent people hit now, the pathways may have a little more bandwidth. So if you're teaching a power clean, <clears throat> there's certain postures you need to have it address when the bar's on the floor. As it moves to the knee position, there's other postures that successful people hit and novice and unsuccessful people don't hit. So there's some landmark positions that we teach towards, and there's some landmark pathways that people move their limbs and their body through so you don't see anybody in 100 meters running with their arms up here by their face or with their arms totally straight locked out. You know, there's angulation and movement of the humerus in the sh shoulder joint, and there's some common denominators. Now, the bandwidth, do they block right here on their shoulder or a little lower with the elbow a little more open? That's bandwidth. That's what we're talking about, bandwidth. How high is their knee lift? Is it up? Thigh parallel to the ground is 45 degrees to the ground. Some of that can be due to overdevelopment of certain muscle systems or uh, a faulty joint position. So uh, last month or so, big articles out on Usain Bolt being asymmetrical. Well, he has scoliosis of the spine, and that creates a leg length difference. So the kinetics and kinematics of one leg versus the other leg are quite a bit different. But he's found movement solutions to kind of rebalance that system. But to say that, that you know you can just run any way you want, I think is a bit of a misnomer. If you analyze movement, whether it's striking a tennis ball or a swimming stroke or running stroke, the best people have some commonalities to their landmark positions and their movement paths. So we identify the big rocks. We teach towards the big rocks. Uh, we detect and note variances from the mean, if you will, on, the, on those qualities and those metrics. And our litmus test is if we change them closer to the model, do we get more efficient? If they have a chronic injury history or an acute injury history that's symptomatic to certain times of the year, is this movement aberration or distance from the norm a source of that problem? So if there is a chronic injury or acute situation or we think there's inefficiencies, then we're going to coax people to move closer to the mean on the movement kinetics and kinematics in question. No, that's awesome. And I think that understanding the whole idea of the big rocks versus the little rocks is really important there. Yeah, and I think most S&C coaches do this in the weight room. Like the, 
if they're teaching an Olympic lift or a pressing lift or a squatting lift or, um, you know, maybe even plyometric type jumps and all that, they have these key landmark positions that they judge the movement against. So they're already doing it. And those key positions, you know, as you coach a little bit longer, you start seeing movement patterns into those key positions and then you start coaching movement pathways. So a lot of strength and conditioning coaches already doing it, but they're only doing it in one sphere of their day or their world. They're not taking those principles and skill sets and applying it out in the field when kids are running and changing direction and uh, things of that nature. So it presupposes that you understand fundamental mechanics, you know, laws of physics, but you also know the sport movement and, and you have a model that you're teaching towards. And then some coaches have the model, but they don't hold athletes accountable. They'll just say, well, they're good already, so I'm just going to leave them alone. Well, if that kid has a chronic injury history or he falls apart in the later part of the game, that's an efficiency problem. And so just leaving that kid alone is not really helping the overall development of that athlete, in my opinion. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think that breaking down those fundamental techniques and understanding, like you were saying, the big rocks of like change of direction and you know your accelerations and, and things of that nature, not just as a strength and conditioning aspect, but I think that that's a big missing link when we talked about return to place protocols with kids that are hurt. You know, we get yeah. so into the whole, like, hop stop for a knee injury. But if it was a non-contact injury, shouldn't we teach the kid how to cut? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, like... Uh, the return to play problem is epidemic worldwide. You know, I consult in a lot of sport disciplines all over the world in a variety of levels and centers of excellence. And, uh, you know, sports meds kind of lost the plot. We, you know, I think we have athletic trainers and physios and team docs and orthopedics and whatnot that do a pretty good job when presented with an acute injury. But with chronic injuries or what to do after the acute rehab stage is over, it, it, it's like the Wild West out there. there there's very, very uh, little consensus on what is timelines and landmarks and, and procedural operational methods to return to play. Uh, my friend Matt Jordan in Calgary, who does a lot of forest platform study, works a lot in alpine skiing, and they do a lot of research on return to play from severe knee injuries and hip injuries, um, ACL injuries, and alpine skiers are, you know, it's just the price you pay for that sport. And what he's finding is Movement signatures change up to two years after an operation. And sometimes you'll get false movement signatures that appear that this athlete's out of danger on certain types of movements or jump tests, but it's really an overcompensation and the system will break down if you rush the timeline. So, you know, when we see guys back five week, months after an ACL repair or a patella tendon injury or whatnot, I'm like, they may be back, but they're not out of jail. Because the research is showing it can be up to two years of very intelligent return to play training before an athlete returns to consistent data production in a balanced format. Wow. 
That's kind of frightening. Yeah, and it's not in the literature. Yeah, I mean, two years. Yeah. So if you ever get a chance to read or interface with uh, Matt, he, he he's doing some pioneer work up there in Calgary at the, the Institute there. Yeah, you know, we're starting to get into some, some force plate stuff here, and uh, he's the name that Daniel Martinez brings up all the time when we're talking about force plate stuff is, is Matt up there. Yeah, Matt's probably been at that and in vibration platform training and efficacies and stuff like that. Those have been his two main thrusts of research, but there's probably not a guy in North America doing more applied uh, skin in the game, hands-on uh, science in this return to play realm uh, where force plates and kinetics combined with kinematics are, are being looked at objectively. He's a really interesting guy. Well, that's fantastic. So let's back up a bit again. You brought up, we were talking about postures and we were talking about the big rocks, and you brought up one of the buzzwords when it comes to training athletes in the weight room, and that's Olympic lifting. So yeah. how do you identify where those are going to fit with your athletes and if they don't fit with the athletes what are some things that you do instead of those yeah well you yeah, have a little bit of a bias uh, the thrust of my work has been in track and field and <clears throat> i've coached all the disciplines so I've, I've been a throws coach a jumps coach and um there's probably a bias in track and field towards olympic lifting so early days i had to learn it and be tutored and mentored and develop networks in it. And uh, uh, so, I, you know, I've, I've come into this saying I've got a little bit of bias towards that. Now, do I think it's the end all to, you know, out there? No. I think where these polemic battles are occurring in the weight room, like hip thrust versus squat versus deadlift versus Olympic lifts, these polemic stances and arguments is like, for us, is like, what are we trying to do in the weight room with an exercise? What, what are we absolutely trying to affect? It, is it biochemistry? Is it sequencing? Is it motor units? Is it change in direction? Is it amortization factors? So in an Olympic lift, for me, I worked primarily in university settings for 30 years, so time was super valuable. So if I only have an hour in the weight room because I'm track and field, not football, and I've got to fit that in with tutorials and classes and all that, what few exercises can I use, bang for the buck, to get a lot done, to tick a lot of boxes? And for me, Olympic lifting did that. You know, I, I could come up with 10 exercises or I can do an Olympic lift and kind of tick those 10 boxes. Um I'm not a believer that weight room transfers. So there's some bias there. Like if I'm a pole water running 10 meters per second and I plant the pole and I experience seven times my body weight and forces going through the spine, I don't know a weight room exercise out there that's gonna replicate that. So um, I'm a little bit skeptical on the transference uh, side of the spectrum. So for us, we, you know, or for myself personally, it's like, why are we lifting? 
why are we doing this exercise? What are we hoping to get out of it? And then I'm going to test, like, if we, if I got a long jumper and I think uh, split snatch is going to help them with amortization on the takeoff, well, if my data after three months shows that's not changing, then my hypothesis that that split snatch is going to affect that really isn't bringing rain, is it? So I, I think a lot of, you know, I, I don't want to be cynical, but I think a lot of people pick exercises in the weight room and they really don't have sound rationale for why they're doing the exercise. They may have some cliche that they throw out, but sports specifically, they don't really have a sound rationale on what physiological or uh, cognitive perceptional skills that they're hoping to attack. And then what are they doing with follow-up analysis on whether that's really having an effect in real-world, real-time movement activities? So the, those are some of the hurdles that uh, we jump over and battle with, you know, in our programming decisions. Yeah, so let's, let's keep going with that a little bit because you're not the first guy that I've talked with that says that a lot of the stuff in the weight room doesn't really have a lot of transfer. Yeah. And... You know, if we're going to talk about being down in Arizona, I mean, Buddy Morris will say that everything we do in the weight room is general anyway. So we need to make sure we're looking at, you know, what we're looking at. What then? Uh, I, I, I think transference is probably an ambiguous term. It's probably too broad. You know, it's again, I use the word spectrum a lot. It's probably spectral. So say we're looking at biochemical factors, you know, hormone influence, immune axis, pressure on thymus, pituitary, the long axis. Certain lifts are going to put more pressure on that and have more adaptive response than other lifts. So is there some biochemical transfer with certain weight room exercises that you may be able to use those batteries and pathways and substrates on the field? Sure. But in terms of kinematics and kinetics, if we're moving through space, the weight room limits those kinds of activities. Even if you're doing a Franz Bosch movement in the weight room, what is the velocity of horizontal factor while you're doing that exercise? What are the numbers of vertical acceleration at the end range of that exercise, they're nowhere near what a high jumper is executing on the high jump apron. So to say that exercise is a jump transference exercise, a little bit of a reach. Might be a biochemical or a bioelectric, or it may have fascial training implications that have some degree of transfer. But uh, I think transfer, I think the semantics of the word is a little too broad-based um, for my taste. No, I, I love that. I love that answer. So then let's keep going with that and let's keep diving down that rabbit hole. So how do you decide or come to the conclusion that those specific biological adaptations are the ones that are required to increase that athlete's performance? Well, again, it comes back to this ergonomic analysis, you know, through film, induction interviews, and... Um, inquiries to previous coaches and looking at medical records and you know you do the, this layered analysis of the athlete and you, um, like in the high jump there's high absolute strength 
demands and relative strength demands. And you know, no matter how tall or short, how fast or slow, high jumpers that are world-class men and women have certain strength characteristics. And if you don't have those, then you better have some other outstanding characteristics and some other biomotor realms, or you're not going to be successful in, in the high jump. Now, do I think everybody needs to lift? No. I mean, I've coached sub 10 second sprinters that don't lift. Uh, I've coached uh, world medalists in the long jump that don't lift, you know, but they had other skill sets, fascial gifting, elastic qualities, speed qualities that more than made up for their inability or lack of desire to lift. Uh, Sometimes injury presents itself and you can't do certain lifts for a period of time. And yet these athletes go out and they're still at a world-class level. So that makes you step back and go, how critical is this lift? We didn't do it all year because we had this injury we we're working around and they had the best year of their life. Well, the devil's advocate would say, well, he's doing it off all the previous year's money in the bank. Uh, but you know, I've had some athletes that didn't lift their entire career, and they were world-class level. So, uh, and, and it kind of bleeds into some other questions, like how many days a week do you have to be in the weight room? It's a great question. Yeah, a lot of world-class guys in season, maybe once every ten days, they're fine. And then. You know, we get caught up in academic studies that say, well, if you don't train this quality after so many weeks, it's ground zero. I, what else are you doing? You know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go to ground zero. But the, the real question is, what is your refractory index? So after I stop training a certain quality, how many sessions do I need before that quality is rebooted and back to normal? So I've had athletes retire, not lift for a year, decide to unretire, come back, and within three to five sessions, they're at PR levels in the weight room. And I had a year off. Well, that kind of defies the study because I don't think we've explored this refractory slope index of cessation of training back to retraining, rebooting systems. How many hits do we need before we're back to normal? You know, I, I came into this real early working with NFL guys. I'd have a guy that have a surgery after the season. He'd miss OTAs and training camp, rehab and injury. So he missed all these, these crazy workouts and these running workouts and stuff. Slowly played himself back into shape. The first few exhibition games, maybe limited time or reduced time the first couple games of the year. And then at the end of the season, he was a pro bowler had the season of his life. And so I'm going, well, how important is all that preseason stuff? Because he missed it all. So I think sometimes we attach significance or importance to, to certain menu items. Uh, and we really don't know if they're that important for that unique athlete. That's probably heresy to a lot of coaches, though. You know, I it, it, probably, but who cares? Um, it's true, and it like you know, you just can't run away from the fact that like there, there's just kind of sometimes where you have to 
you know, and pump your brakes and walk away. I mean, like, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, my main responsibility is basketball. I, I've never put a squat rack at center court when we go to overtime and, and we don't squat to win a game. I mean, it's, you know, straight coaches say cliche garbage like that all the time and we, you know, half joke about it. But, but it really is the truest of the sense. Like, those cats got a ball. Yeah. Like, that's well, it. I, I mean, you, you could have a real tall guy who's got no weight training or strength training background. He comes in, he's kind of uncoordinated, and, you know, he just can't move. Well, squatting for that guy might be hugely beneficial. It'll improve his first step. It'll improve his jump so on and so forth. So it may be a higher KPI for that guy to say you got this greyhound gazelle in there that can jump through the roof and go all day. Squatting that guy may take away his best gifts. 100%. And that's the same conversation that I have with my kids all the time. It's like, you know, I think that a question that I don't think we as coaches ask our athletes enough is, like, what do you think? And, yeah. and how is this with you? And like, or even or, some, go ahead. Or watch, watch them unbiased. You know, put them through different programs and just say, I'm going to observe without bias to see what's really happening here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and it's not just in coaching, it's in medicine too. Like, oh, where are we at on antibiotics? Like any kid that goes into a GP right now, if there's any hint of infection, they're on antibiotics. Well, what if it's viral? What if it's fungal? You know, but the first line of defense is ah, antibiotics. Here's antibiotics. Use it for 10 days, even if you don't, if you start feeling better. Well, now the research is saying hey, you don't have to for 10 days. Oh, yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a kid with whatever it may be just turn the corner and all of a sudden, oh, you got your Z-Pack. And it's like, yep, here we go. Yeah. Oh, no, that's, that's a fantastic point. So I guess then, Coach, the, the, the question that I would have is what would your advice be then to someone trying to look into this more? What are ways – that people trying to figure out these these better decisions, like what are some simple starting points that you would give to to a younger, newer coach in order to start that ball rolling to get that process moving in that direction? Well, I, b I believe strongly in mentorship, so I think young coaches should have a network and and mentors and. Uh, a good starting spot for me on any novel idea or research is what are the common denominators that everybody's looking at or playing around with? Ooh. And then I'm not biased into that discipline. So if I'm looking at certain metrics and how people are handling them statistically, I'm not going to look just at biomechanists. I'm going to look at economists, measurement people, management engineers, systems engineering. I'm looking at how all these unique disciplines are applying statistical pressure to certain metrics. And then when I start to see a commonality of approach on those various entities, that's my starting spot. So I think most 
strength coaches know like, hey, we need to be able to change directions. We need to be able to explode. Uh, we need to be able to move fast. So, well, there, there's your starting spot. You know, what are you doing to affect those big rocks? And go to your network, go to your mentors and say, athlete X, here's what I see. Here's what I think would help him. What do you do with this type of athlete? And, you know, say, say, you know, we go back to our big guy, you know, terrible first step, can't jump, can't jump, standing still, can't jump on the run. Well, we know there's a strength, power, expression issue. So you call 10 of your most respected buddies and say, okay, have you ever had a seven-foot guy that's a slug? Yep, had one of those. What did you do? What worked? What failed? You know, so you start developing this flow chart, um, and then that gives you a starting spot. That's awesome. You know, this is predicated that you can see motion and measure motion and that you're teaching to a good technical model. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, if you're telling them to do everything incorrectly, that's going to be the biggest limiting factor of all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes you're fighting real huge factor, you know. So this guy's had a history of stress fractures of his foot. Well, he's going to be real hesitant to try things. Mm -hmm. So you've got to figure out with your medical staff what else, where else in the body is contributing to all these forces ending up in the foot, creating this stress reaction chronic pattern that this guy's reporting, and go to work there. Because athletes are smart. They know that isolated injuries don't occur all on their own there there's other factors like athletes just have that sense like you know i'm going into the training room we're doing x y and z and nothing's getting better they're smarter than we are yeah yes 100 percent. but listen coach that is a absolutely killer spot to to bring this to a close i think that bringing it full circle there with coming from the KPIs and bringing it all the way back to the mentorship and the people that you learned with and understanding that really, you know, it's something we talk about here a lot, the collaboration between the people that you are having your circle to help better what you're doing for your athletes. That's what's most important. Absolutely fantastic stuff. I can't thank you enough for being on with us today. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate what you guys are doing. Well, thank you so much, coach. And we'll be in touch real soon. All right. Anytime. Yes, sir. And a huge thanks to Altus' Dan Path for spending the time with us today. I mean, guys, just some things to make you open your eyes and think about when it comes to what we're doing. The whole idea of big rocks and little rocks and looking at what transfers and things of that nature. I cannot thank Dan enough for just being so open and honest and candid with everything. This talk was sensational. It got me thinking. I hope it did the same for you. And guys, if you did enjoy the talk, please, as always, share it through the social media outlet of your choice. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, again, whatever it is, just a reminder, we're just trying to get the best information possible out there to all the great coaches that are helping us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. So if you enjoyed it, hit the like button, feel free to share it. We would greatly appreciate it. And as always, guys, thank you for everything that you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.